The following audio is from the Grove Church Marysville campus. For more information about our church or to listen to previous sermons, check out our website at grove.church. Well, once again, good morning. Glad you're here today. Hopefully you had a great fourth. Everybody digits up. Okay, hands up right here. Let me see. Make sure you got all those fingers and don't put your toes up. Leave those in your sandals for now. But uh, good job. Hey, quick correction. I apologize. I mentioned the story in 1 Samuel, and it was Eli who was the priest who confirmed Hannah's prayer to be able to have kids. So a little correction there. As a heads up, I felt the need to make sure I got that right. Um, Hey, we're in a series called Happy Trails. Today is part six, and uh, we're going to be in Psalm 131 as we're taking on the Psalms of Ascent. Just a quick backstory. The Psalms of Ascent are Psalms 120 through 134, and they were sung or chanted or quoted to one another during Israel's um, pilgrimages to Jerusalem. Three times a year, the entire nation made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate God's goodness, God's provision, and they would use these psalms in particular to challenge and encourage one another along the way to Jerusalem. So um, today is part six, and we'll be in 131. I want to celebrate for a moment. I want you to celebrate with me. First of all, that last Sunday, we had 21 people give their lives to Christ, so that was awesome. And then also... um, About a month ago, I was invited to do a baptism uh, last Sunday uh, at Lake Stevens at Lundin Park, and I said, yeah, sure, I'll be there and make that happen. That's great. So we get there. First of all, it's a 70th birthday party, and we had six people get baptized at Lake Stevens last. It was incredible. It was so fun. So anyway, really, really fun. Uh, Well, let's go ahead and jump in, and and we'll get to Psalm 131 here in a second. But when I was a kid, um, I collected baseball cards. Anybody else out there collect baseball cards? Okay, just a few of us. Um, I still have all of them in boxes, and sometimes my kids go through them. Unfortunately, I made a decision years ago to collect Pete Rose cards. That was a bad idea. So I got about 50 of those that are make good, you know, for spokes on your wheels to make a motorcycle noise, but... Anyway, collected baseball cards, and, and back in Little League, uh, in Marysville, when the games were over at Cedar Field, we would all get a voucher to go over and get anything we wanted from the concession stand, so candy or whatever. Every one of us, when I remember this as a kid, every one of us would go over there, and we would pick a pack of baseball cards with the gum inside, and it wasn't about the gum, obviously. It was about going through the cards and figuring out, like, did I get any good cards? Did I get, you know, the ones I wanted or the, the player that I really liked? And what would happen is, all of us would open our cards, and inevitably, we would be trading cards and we'd be like, hey, trade you, trade you, trade you. And trade you has been happening probably since the foundation of the world. I think of like cavemen trading rocks and sticks for children or whatever. But anyway, um, (laughs) trading things all the time. I think we're aware that like in early American history, you know, there were people that traded like beaver pelts for beads, for food, for whatever, in order to make a living or to survive. And every week on Wall Street, there's individuals that are called day traders, that every day they're in the trenches trading stocks back and forth in order for their clients or corporations to make money. Many of us, as we talk about tradia, many of us are are well aware that one of the best trades in the history of the world, or the best trade in the history of the world, is, is Jesus trading places with us. When we talk about the message that matters to us as a church, it really is that we got to trade our sin for his sacrifice, that we got to trade our mess for his mercy, that we got to trade our death for his life, and that's the best trade of all time. But the thing is, for you and I, as we're learning to follow Jesus and what this means and taking steps, there's constantly this challenge to make a trade that God ongoing wants us to make. In Psalm 131, we're going to talk about this trade. Verse 1, it says this, My heart is not proud. My eyes are not haughty, O Lord. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. 
But I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I'm content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord both now and forevermore. Jesus, today help us wrap our heads and our hearts around this psalm and why it means so much to us today, thousands of years after it was written. That God, we can wrap our heads around, our heart around what you want for us from this psalm in Jesus' name, amen. Verse one says, my heart is not proud. My eyes are not haughty, O Lord. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. This psalm starts out tackling the topic of pride. It's tackling this issue that pride is a problem for anybody that's making a decision to follow the Lord. And in fact, the message version says this, God, I'm not trying to rule the roost. I don't want to be king of the mountain. And as you look even back into the Old Testament, you see that over and over and over, leaders are punished by God for their pride. Leaders are dealt with by God because they're full of themselves. That includes Israel's kings. Those full of pride, and we find this in our own world. Those that are full of pride, when you think about prideful people, and we would never put ourselves in that category, right? It's other people. It's always somebody else that's prideful, not us. But here's a couple of ways to think about, do I have pride in my heart, in my life? Am I quick to judge even though I don't know the better part of a situation? Am I harsh with other people not understanding the grace that God's extended towards me? Am I full of myself And little by little, subtly, do I find that maybe I'm shutting out my faith and shutting out the spiritual dimension of my life because I'm maybe full of myself. If you're taking notes, I always encourage you to be a note taker. If you're taking notes, Psalm chapter 10 verse 4 says this, In his pride, a wicked man does not seek God. In all his thoughts, there is no room for him. Proverbs 8 verse 13 says this, to fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior and perverse speech. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Years ago, an author named Jim Collins wrote a book called Good to Great. And I read that book years ago, and it really uh, takes the history of certain companies and certain companies that were good companies, but they made the leap to what would be considered a great company. And there are certain criteria. And as you read the book, you read about all these different companies that made that leap. The thing is, though, if you read that book today, you'll actually read about companies that made the leap, but then have completely fallen off and some don't even exist today. Now, I don't know if it was Jim Collins looking at this going, hey, here's a way to make a little more money by writing another book, or he cared about the process and wanted to help us all understand, but after a good to great and and some time went by, he wrote a book called How the Mighty Fall. And in that book, he records some of those same companies that, that made the leap from good to great, but then fell off. And just to paraphrase the book in one word, so you don't necessarily have to read it, the one word is this, hubris. Now, some of you don't know what that word means. Some of you maybe heard the word, but never really understood it. Um, It's not hummus, it's hubris, just to be clear. But the word hubris means this, being full of oneself due to success. And that's where, as he chronicles in this book, How the Mighty Fall, which I read, he he goes over in these companies why they fell. He says the number one reason companies could go from good to great and then fall off is because they became full of themselves. 
And it's something that you and I have to ask ourselves all the time. Am I, at times, do I find myself full of myself? Or maybe better, when I battle pride, what do I do about it? Because not many of us in this room would go, I'm prideful. But if we're all really honest at certain points in our days and weeks and months and years, every one of us struggles with pride. Every one of us struggles with, with this idea, even of hubris. And that this world can sometimes, we feel like, revolve around us. Or in our pride, we stop listening. We stop learning. Listen, sometimes in our pride and our success, we become so good at something or a way of doing certain things that we look at others that we used to listen to and go, well, they're not relevant to me anymore because I've come farther than they have, so what do they have to teach me? In our pride, we stop listening. In our pride, we know better than so many other people, and there's very few that we would actually listen to and learn from because somehow we're in a better spot than they are. In pride, we step forward like the emperor in his new clothes, not realizing he's stark naked. In fact, in scripture, there's a story that's not exactly the same, but it's a story many of us are aware of, and it was in our reading plan last week. It's a story of King David, and many of us are aware of this story. But in the story, King David is on the roof of his palace and he's overlooking Jerusalem. All the kings are off to war. and All the, the, the armies are off to war and that's where he should be. But instead he's at home and he's walking around and as he's looking out, he sees a beautiful girl that's not wearing anything and he decides, hey, I'm gonna send somebody over. We're gonna hang out. We're gonna spend some time together. And so here's David and, and, and all of a sudden Bathsheba is invited over and they, they quote unquote spend some time together. And then a little bit of time goes on and she finds out she's pregnant. And all of a sudden she sends word to David, David, uh, just so you know, I'm, I'm pregnant and this is, you know, a problem. And David, in his pride, again, he's supposed to be off at war like, like those that are, are, you know, at battle should be. And he's not there. And in his pride, he comes up with a great solution. And he sends out for Bathsheba's husband and, and, and says, bring him back. I want to spend some time with him. And he comes back and, and they're hanging out. And he, assumed, he says, hey, why don't you go back to your house tonight and, and go be with your wife and have some fun. We'll send you back to the battle lines. And the night wears on and, and Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, is, is uh, too, too uh, honorable to do that. So he stays in the town square. And David's frustrated. And David in his pride is like, this is a problem that I need to solve. What am I going to do? So he decides to get him drunk, which is a whole other sermon for another day. He decides to get him drunk, assuming, well, if he's drunk, he won't know what he's doing and he won't have self-control, so he'll go back home and he'll do what he does with his wife and then go back to the battle lines and it'll all be fine and they'll assume it's his kid. And so he gets him drunk and, and the party ends and he sends him back home only to find out the next day he didn't do it. He didn't go back home. He went back to the town square because he's a man of honor who wouldn't do that when all of his friends are out fighting battles. So David, in his hubris and frustration, it's like, what am I going to do now? And it gets worse. So all of a sudden, David decides, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to send him back to the battle. I'm going to ask the commander to pull the army back and not have Uriah be aware of it and, and have him get killed. And that's the plan. Now, if you've ever had a plan like this, we got problems. But, but here's the thing. You look at David and go, this is a man who's described as a man after God's own heart. And here he is committing premeditated murder. Now, he sends him back to the battle lines with that note. He literally carries the note. 
Here, give this to the commander. It basically says, kill him, you know. So he gives the note to the commander. He goes out to the battle. The battle's raging. The, the army's pulled back. Uriah ends up being killed, and, and report is sent back to David. Now, a normal king, if he got report of this battle being lost the way that it was, would be furious and frustrated and be going, why did this happen? But the report goes like this. Dear king, the battle was raging, and it was fierce, and the armies were pulled back, and we didn't win that portion of the battle. And, and Uriah the Hittite, by the way, is dead. And so here's his response. Instead of getting angry and going, why did you do this? Instead of getting angry, what do you need to do better next time? Because that's a problem. Here's his response when he finds out Bathsheba's husband is dead. Well, you know, one man dies one day, another man dies another. That's his answer. Now, what he assumes now is life goes on. I've fixed the problem, committed premeditated murder after I committed adultery. I mean, it's a mess. And he's going about his life, and his friend Nathan shows up. And Nathan comes knocking on the door one day. David! Nathan! Hey, come on in! They spend some time together. And Nathan says, David, I want to tell you a story. There's a guy that's got all these cattle and all these sheep and all these resources and all this stuff. And somebody important comes to town, and they decide to throw a party, and it's a big deal. And there's a guy down the street with just one little ewe lamb, but he loves this little lamby so much. Probably doesn't say lamby, but I did. Loves this lamby so much, and he, he treats it like his own daughter, and he feeds it at his own table, and he just cares a lot about it. Well, the guy throwing the party that has all these resources says, hey, let's not take some of mine. Why don't you go take his and, and, and sacrifice it, and, and, and we'll eat it together. And David becomes so angry. And, and Nathan goes, what? Well, you're upset. I see. What do you think should be done to this guy? And David goes, he should be killed. And you know where I'm going with this. But all of a sudden, Nathan looks at David and goes, you're the man. And that's where we get Psalm 51. Who the most famous verse says, create, David says, create in me a clean heart, God. And renew a right spirit within me. He says, cast me not away from your presence. Renew a right spirit inside of me. It's a prayer of repentance, but I go back to this whole idea. He was so full of himself that he got what he wanted because he was where he shouldn't be, and then he committed premeditated murder to try to clean it up and still didn't get away with it. And then for you and I, it goes back to the question, we may not admit today, I'm prideful, but if we're all honest, there are moments in our lives and days and weeks and sometimes months of our lives that we live in our own pride and maybe we're not even aware of it. Do you know better than everybody else? Who do you listen to? What keeps you in check? Are you quick to apologize when you've done something wrong or is it just easier to stuff it and play silent for a few days and life goes on? Are you willing to apologize if you have kids to your kids when you blow it? Or are you above that because you're the parent and you're in charge? Does a bad decision lead you to repentance? We have a code on our wall in the lobby at the Grove Church where we talk about our culture. And we try to be real intentional about who we are. And we say things like, hey, we will laugh hard, loud, and often. Nothing is more fun than serving God with people you love. We believe, you know, in, in the saving work of Jesus Christ. We know the methods will change, but the message never will. We will have Christ-centered character. We believe integrity is everything. Without it, nothing else matters. 
We will live, we will preach, teach, live, and serve in ways that anyone can understand. We want everyone to know and grow in Christ. And then some of my favorites. One, we will lead the way with irrational generosity. We believe it's more blessed to give than to receive. But now this one. We give up things we love for things we love even more. The church does not exist for us. We are the church and we exist for the world. And I think about how just recently I heard two different stories a couple of weeks ago about some people trying to find a seat in this room and it was asked, hey, could you shove over? And somebody responded with, well, this is my seat. Can I just say this? Unless your name's embroidered on it, it's not your seat. That what we want to do when we say we give up things we love for things we love even more, I love that you have your seat. That's great. But you know what I love even more? That somebody else could have a great experience because you're willing to give that up. That, that we talk about, you know, you don't have your own parking. They're in my parking spot. If you want a parking spot, I would love to get you a sign with your name on it, and I'm going to put it somewhere near the middle school. <laughs> and you can just have a nice little walk here. Because we, we don't operate that way. It goes back to like what JFK said about our nation, but let me put it in church context. Ask not what your church can do for you. Ask what you can do for your church. That we're in this to help others see Jesus. We talk about giving up things we love for things we love even more. We've even taught this and, and, and walked people through this journey. We believe the work of God has always been provided for by the people of God. That we're all in this together. And yeah, that includes your time. That includes your talents. That includes your resources. We're going to figure out how to make a difference in our county because we're dreaming and praying and looking for the opportunities God wants to give us. But that's all of us in this together. So it's this picture of realizing, look, this is not about me. The lens of my faith is not about what I get out of it. It has everything to do with, God, how do you want to use me to advance your kingdom in this world? Can I hear it? Amen. Amen. And that's at the core, the heart that we want to have. Proverbs 11:2, as I'm quoting some Proverbs, says this, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom. It's as simple as this. The solution to pride is an invitation to humility. The solution to pride is an invitation to humility. If pride includes that I know better, then humility acknowledges that others can help. Rick Warren in his book, Purpose Driven Life, says this, humility is not thinking less of myself, but thinking of myself less. There's pillars of the New Testament, including the Apostle Paul, who said this, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. And that's a tall order. Do you know why we have to bear with one another? Because we don't all see the same way. Because we don't all act the same way. Because we don't all do things exactly the same. And that means we've got to have grace with each other. That I don't always get it right and you don't always get it right. That's why we need grace in our relationship. It's required. Peter, a disciple of Jesus, said this, finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. You want to talk about a verse full of like 28 sermons? These were, every one of these phrases, like, could work on that one. And then James, who's the half-brother of Jesus, said this, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Reminds me of that song from old school worship. 
that had the like men and then the women would echo, humble thyself in the sight of the Lord. Come on, ladies, where are you at? There are too many new Christians in here, all right? I want more seasoned. No, I'm just kidding. Anyways, what? You remember that song? Humble thyself in the sight of the Lord. Here we go on. And he will lift you up higher and higher, and he will lift you up. Wow, I did amazing. Anyway, so, okay. But it's that whole thing of like, James literally is saying a song that some of you have sung in church for years. Humble yourself before God. And it all comes down to this. In pride, in hubris, in being full of ourselves, the world doesn't revolve around us. This isn't all about us. We can't look through the lens of, I'm always in control. Some of you have such an issue with control that when something happens that's outside of your comfort zone, you start freaking out. And let me tell you something, that's a good thing. Not that you freak out, but there's something happening outside of your control because you never were in control to begin with. Anybody ever got a call from a doctor? Anybody ever got a call from a state patrol? Anybody ever receive one of those moments where your world is thrown for a loop upside down? You're not in control. It's an illusion. And the reminder of a psalm like this, even when we get to the last verse, which we're only through verse one, by the way. So, gonna be a long day. Okay, we're gonna have a host team come down with peanuts and popcorn and cotton candy and get your peanuts here. Okay. We're only on verse one. Good night. Okay. Humility is an attribute that Jesus embodied. And it's worth remembering because we understand Jesus is our savior from sin, and that's huge. But here's the thing you need to understand. Theologically, we also believe that Jesus was the perfect human example of how to live life. And we can't forget that. And here's the words he said in Matthew eleven twenty nine: Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart. Okay, I'm gonna stop there for a second. Jesus is saying in the midst of this whole world of stuff that goes on beyond your control, come to me. That's what Jesus says. He says, take my yoke upon you, for I'm gentle and humble in heart. And then he says this, and you will find rest for your souls. That sentence cannot be separate. You you can't take the, the last part of that sentence as a separate verse or a separate comment. It all plays together, and the idea leads us to verse two, finally. But it leads us to verse two because what Jesus is saying is when you, when you can be lit, when you can live gently, when you can live humble in heart, realizing I'm not in control, I'm so glad I have a God who is and I can lean on him in the midst of whatever you might be going through. When I can do that, then I can rest. And some of you desperately need some rest for your souls. You're troubled and you lose sleep and you're anxious and you're worried and you're upset and you're angry and all this stuff. And Jesus says, come to me with this stuff. It's part of the price that he bore on the cross was so that you could have rest for your soul. So now let's finally get to verse two. It says, I have calmed and quieted myself. I'm like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Calmed and quieted. Not a place we often find ourselves. We we would use words like hurried and loud and crazy and, and busy and overwhelmed, but not calmed and quieted. But how many of us are aware it's hard to hear the voice of God when life is hectic? 
It's hard to hear the voice of God when we don't step back from a crazy pace and allow ourselves to tune in to what God wants to do. It's a story of Elijah in, in, in 1 Kings 19. In 17 and 18, Elijah's out doing crazy exploits and crazy stuff's going on, and he ends up trying to escape out to a mountain, and he's overwhelmed to the point where he's even said, I just want to die, Lord. And all of a sudden, upon this mountain, he, the, the Lord reminds him, go, go up over here, and he does. And it says that as he stood on this edge of the mountain or this area of the mountain, there was a crazy storm and a wind that went by, but the Lord wasn't there. And then it says that there was an earthquake and, and everything's shaking. And you can imagine on a mountaintop with that moment, that'd be terrifying. And it says the Lord wasn't there. And it says after that, there was a fire that roared up the mountain somehow. And it specifically says the Lord wasn't there. And then it says that everything began to grow quiet. And there was a still small whisper. And it says that's where God was. See, it's understanding for some of us in this room, you're living at such a pace that you can't hear or discern the voice of God. Because there's no whisper. Everything's constantly yelling, including that pastor on stage sometimes. <laughs> I had somebody comment a couple of weeks ago that, I think there's a problem with your mic. It seems like you're yelling. So, <laughs> it's not the mic, it's me. Sorry. <laughs> this verse two is the picture of a child resting in its mom's arms. It's composed and it's free from discontent because that's the place it needs to be. And it goes back to for you and I. In our pride, we're trying to control and we're trying to make sure and we're trying to you know, make things happen when there are times where God is saying, stop and lean into me and watch what I wanna do. Because if we continue in the control trap and in the pride, you'd be surprised the monster we can become. If David, a man after God's own heart, could not only commit adultery, but, but premeditated murder? Dear Jesus, help us. Finally, verse three says, Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. That that's where our confidence is found. That at the core, and we say it all the time, that's where our confidence is found. That, that we're not in control. And when we say Trajah, because I brought the, the whole opening of the message with Trajah, God is literally saying to every one of us in this room, trade you. I want to trade you your pride. I want to trade you the idea that you're in control. I want to trade you all this stuff that you're carrying and the hectic patient. I want to trade you for something far better. Anybody ever heard of the 12 steps? Some of you in here have been through the 12 steps and walked through the 12 steps. It's the most successful recovery program in the history of the world. And it centers around two simple truths. One, I'm not in control. And two, I need something higher than me. The 12 steps. Get, get specific. Number one, admit that I'm powerless against addiction. And every one of us can have an addiction of some sort at any moment in our lives, including the addiction to power and pride. Number two, believe there's a higher power that can restore. And again, from our lens, as followers of Christ, many of us in this room, our, our lens is, is a surrender to, to God, which is number three, or to Jesus, place my dependence in that source. Those are the first three steps of the 12-step recovery program. How amazing to me. that to, to me, it's like these come straight out of scripture. Lord, I'm powerless. Even Paul said, when I am weak, then I am strong. What about that? What follows as you continue down the 12 steps? Here's a few. 
But, but it, it, it's steps that place a person into acts of humility, a fierce moral inventory, being real about who you are, what you're hiding, who you're becoming when no one's watching, a fierce or ruthless moral inventory, atoning for past wrongs, needing to rebuild bridges with people where you've held on in your pride to unforgiveness, to walls that have been kept between you and another individual. Another one, engaging in community. We talk all the time at the Grove about connecting with each other, that we don't want you on your own trying to do this thing. You're not created to do it on your own. It's why as we get into fall, you talk about life groups again and, and encouraging people to be connected. And finally, in the last part of it, helping others. Helping other people. That's what we're called to do. Like I said, the most successful recovery program is something that you could take right out of Scripture. But what about you? What about me? How about dealing with pride in our own lives? Hubris in our own lives? The need for humility in our own lives. God, today, I pray that we would be willing to confront in our own lives, in our heart, in our minds, God, that there is pride. And whether it's there today and very evident, or it creeps up this week or, or next month or whatever, it's something that doesn't just one and done. It's not just a one prayer and goes away. It's something for every one of us that we battle. But the beauty of, of the battle is that the battle is won as we find ourselves in a place of surrender. That God to defeat pride is to invite humility because that's the model Jesus gave us. And humility for us, inviting humility is literally surrendering ourselves to Christ and all that he's done that we can become who you desire. Father, help us, God, because we all need it. This isn't a message from me to you. This isn't me preaching to them, God. This is literally all of us. God, there's hubris that there's pride, that there's a sense of of my way or the highway. And while we may not say it like that sometimes, we at least feel it. And my prayer, Father, is that you would work in us to make us humble people. It's not easy. It's not a fun prayer. But God, it's the best place we can be because it's the place Jesus was. It's in your name, Lord, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Marysville Sermon Podcast. If you want to keep up with us, like us on Facebook, Instagram, or visit our website at grove.church.